thank you for downloading this podcast from Gaimere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, gaimerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Good morning. Uh, our Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. And I'm reading from the New International Version. And the, the uh, passage is headed, The Father Revealed in the Son. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from, wise, from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Uh, well, we have come to the end of this series, Follow Me, and I want to remind you for the sake of clarity of the two principles that I have said just about every week for the last however many weeks we've been doing this. Uh, some of you probably would be able to recite them back to me, but again, for clarity's sake, let me remind you. Uh, we've been saying from the very beginning that anyone can begin to follow Jesus. Uh, when Jesus first called his disciples, uh, he didn't put any conditions of faith or behavior or of knowledge on them. He didn't say, listen, you have to believe X, Y, and Z about me before you can start to follow me. Anyone could follow as long as they were curious enough to begin to do so. But the second principle that we've been repeatedly uh, talking about is that if you begin to follow after Jesus, inevitably you're going to come to a place where you're going to have to make a decision about what you believe about him. And that decision is going to have implications not only for your beliefs, but also for your behavior. Uh, and I've given you two weeks' notice and then one week's notice, and today is the day that I actually want, for those of you who might be in a position to make this decision, to actually decide. Uh, to instead of following Jesus because you are curious or because of some sort of need or even out of some sorts of obligation that you might begin to follow Jesus today because of what you believe about him. Uh, and, and that's why uh, I've taken this, this passage out of uh, Matthew chapter 11 and the invitation that Jesus gives to us. And it's a pretty compelling invitation, isn't it? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I think if I just stopped there and said, is anyone interested in receiving a little bit of rest? I think we'd probably have some takers, wouldn't we? Uh, we are a weary and burdened society, it seems, in lots of different ways. But it's important to recognize that uh, Jesus is, is making more, than, uh, more of a claim than just saying that he'll give you a bit of rest and a bit of relief and a bit of a vacation, shall we say. He's making a very specific claim about him. And this is something that we've seen all the way through the gospel, that the crisis of decision about who Jesus is actually comes from Jesus himself. Jesus makes all sorts of outrageous claims about what he is able to do, about who he is, and about the sorts of things that his life, his death, and his resurrection accomplish. And this is another of them. 
So I want to kind of work almost backwards through this little section, this section that takes place a long time before in the context of Matthew's gospel, Jesus dies and rises again, before Jesus explains what his death and resurrection will do, before he begins talking about his death and resurrection, this invitation has already been given. Uh, and it has some extraordinary claims within it as well. The language that Jesus uses in verse 29 when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, is actually one of our little clues. Jesus is talking here particularly about his interpretation of the law. Uh, it was not uncommon in this period of time, first century Judaism, for teachers of the law to speak about either their teaching or the law of Moses as a yoke. It's an agricultural metaphor. You know, you get two oxen and they're hitched together with a yoke. Or in an individual's case, you can carry a great deal more if you have a bar across your shoulders and kind of lift from there, right? Uh, this idea, this metaphor was used to describe the law or the interpretation of it. And Jesus here is talking about his interpretation of the law. And there's a couple little clues that this language of yoking uh, has to do with the interpretation. And that is, uh, one, in, in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus has a go at the religious leaders who place tremendous burdens on people and do nothing to help them. Jesus really gets stuck into them for how they use the law to burden people. But also, right after Jesus uh, makes this invitation in chapter 12, if you were to read on, he actually has a conflict, or a couple conflicts, with the religious leaders over their interpretation of the laws around the Sabbath, which were all about rest. Isn't that kind of nicely ironic, right? Jesus talks about coming to me, take my yoke upon me, I will give you rest, and then immediately afterwards has a go at the religious leadership for their interpretation of the laws wrapped around the Sabbath day and its rest. Now, let me just remind you, Jesus talks about the interpretation of the law, and let me remind you about the importance of the law. Because if we, if we forget the importance of the law, we're going to miss part of what Jesus is inviting us into. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, but let me remind you again that the law was, was designed, the law had a function, which was to promote lawlessness and to promote relationship. And those two things actually go together. Uh, when I talk about the law promoting lawlessness, what I mean is that the law was designed to show us a portrait of the good life that we were to resonate with and to internalize until it became second nature. Right? So the law describes what it looks like to live in relationship with God. And so if you want to live in relationship with God, you need to internalize the law. You need to live that way. Uh, and the relationship with God and the interpretation of the law are actually interconnected, really strongly interconnected. And, and they're connected this way. Relationships all have rules about them, don't they? Uh, I've talked about this before. Uh, there are rules that we, uh, that we have for our interactions with strangers on the bus uh, and uh, people that we know as acquaintances and those that we work with and those that we are close to and those who are our dear friends and those who we're married to or, or you know, married into their family or whatever it might be, right? And the more significant the relationship becomes, the more significant the rules become. Right? So the reason why significant relationships are significant is because we observe a higher standard in those relationships. Are you with me so far? Right. 
But in significant, deep, meaningful relationships, we very rarely talk about rules because that's not how good relationships work, do they? If I always have to be consulting my little book of rules for my marriage, I'm probably doing it wrong, right? Ideally, my relationship with my wife and the things that I do within that ought to flow out of my heart, right? They should be internalized. The laws about a good marriage should actually be second nature to me over, over time, shouldn't they? Occasionally, I may need to be reminded of them, as perhaps you do as well. Uh, we all are human. But nonetheless, the best relationships are the ones where the rules about those relationships stem right from our heart. And when we are in a relationship or even in some sort of a, a role where we are driven by what comes out of our heart, that's always easy, isn't it? It's always much easier than a law that's external telling us what to do. When we want to do something, it's, it's light, isn't it? And this gets to the very heart of Jesus' invitation here. Because Jesus says that his interpretation of the law, right, his interaction with God is designed to be light because it comes out of his relationship with God. If you have your Bibles with you, just kind of work backwards through this passage. Because just before Jesus gives us this invitation, he says this in verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here we have another one of those outrageous claims that Jesus makes consistently about himself. And what's his claim? Essentially, that he alone knows the Father. He alone knows God. And because he has this unique, privileged understanding of who God is, his interpretation of what it looks like to live in relationship with him, which is, for, from Jesus' perspective, driven by his heart relationship with God, is then something that he invites us to share in. You see the difference between what Jesus offers and what the religious establishment offers, right? The religious establishment offers a whole bunch of a checklist of things to do, this burdensome weight. Jesus offers to introduce us to God in a way that the relationship with him will become for us second nature. And when our relationship with God becomes second nature, when our hearts and our minds have been changed and transformed, then we are truly connected to the Father like Jesus is connected to the Father. And we have peace and security and blessing and assurance and all the things that we are so desperately seeking after. It's quite an invitation, isn't it? It's quite an invitation. But there's actually more to what Jesus has to say here. If you move back in the text again to verse 25, the very beginning of this little section, before Jesus makes this statement about his connection to the Father, he says these things, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And because this is part of the story of Matthew, when, when Jesus pauses and says, I thank you, Lord of heaven, or I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things, we have to ask what these things are. 
Uh, And without taking too long, if you just kind of flip back to chapter 11, in chapter 11, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus's ministry, has been in prison and sent some of his disciples to Jesus asking this question in verse 3, are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus responds by saying to them, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So the things, right, the things that Jesus talks about that are being revealed are the, is the connection between what Jesus does and who Jesus is. That's what John's disciples ask. Are you actually the one that we thought you were? Are you actually going to usher in the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, here's, here's what I've done. Here are the things that I've said. What do you think? And then he goes on to talk to the crowd about John the Baptist to say, do you, do you understand who John is? Because if you understand who John is, then you have to do some math on who I am, right? And this, this is what is being revealed. This is what's being revealed. This revelation of who Jesus is and what that means for us. That's what's been revealed. But how that's been revealed is actually really quite important for us to note. I don't know if you think much about revelation. I'm not sure if you've ever had a revelation. But whenever I've had a revelation, not necessarily divine, but a revelation of anything, it it usually comes in a flash of of inspiration. Does that happen for you? It's like... (gasps) I see, right? There's this moment of revelation. Uh, and, and in the context of the Bible, I think we can think about revelation in that same kind of way. You know, this bright light, of, I don't know, some cloud, an angel maybe, a couple of angels, do not be afraid, some sort of divine revelation. But in the Gospel of Matthew, when things are revealed by the Father, that's not how it looks at all. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter actually confesses and acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's anointed one who's going to bring in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says to him, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. But how was that revealed? It's not as if Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And then Matthew says, and a blinding flash of light fell on Peter, and a voice spoke from heaven, and he fell into a trance. And when he came to, he said, you are the Christ. That's not how it happened at all, is it? How does, G- how does Peter come to understand who Jesus is? He understands who Jesus is, and he has this revealed to him by following after Jesus. He understands who Jesus is by actually beginning to follow after Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And that revelation of God, of who Jesus is, is made in the context of that relationship. Before Peter really understands fully who Jesus is, before Peter really understands fully what it means for Jesus to die and be raised to life, before Peter really understands what it means for him to give his life to follow after Jesus, long before any of that, this truth has been revealed to Peter simply by following Jesus after Jesus. This invitation in chapter 11 to come to me, those of you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest, speaks into every situation, every life that feels burdened by seeking after the good life and not finding it. 
And we all seek the good life, don't we? Health, a little bit of wealth, some joy and laughter, some security for our future, a little bit of blessing, whatever it is. We all seek it, don't we? And yet so often the end result of all of our seeking after that is only to leave us wearied and burdened. And when we are wearied and burdened, we also end up isolated, don't we? You've all experienced the burden of some description. We might not use that language. We've got something that's weighing on our hearts or playing on our minds. And when something is so heavily upon us, we have a hard time thinking about anything else, don't we? And because all we can think about is what is burdening us, we tend not to have a lot of time or energy or space to think about anyone else. And so being with other people is a little bit uncomfortable because I'm not really thinking about you, I'm thinking about me. And we withdraw, don't we? And we end up wearied and burdened and isolated and alone. On top of all of that, we wonder if we're going to be able to handle this burden. We wonder if we're actually going to be able to make it through. We wonder if it's going to get any worse or whether it's ever going to get any better. And Jesus says to everyone who is wearied and burdened, isolated, anxious, stressed, who thinks that perhaps their past or their present means that their future can never be anything other than it is. He says, come to me, and I will introduce you to the very source of the good life. These are the sorts of claims that Jesus regularly makes. And it's why following after Jesus out of curiosity or out of obligation or out of need inevitably comes to a point of decision because he keeps making these kinds of statements. And just the other day, I was... Um, I had, to do, I had to do some additional looking at delegation. I wanted to do a little bit of thinking about delegation. And uh, so I just looked up some YouTube videos. And uh, the, the people I listen to, I have no idea if they're any good. There was some interesting stuff they said, but I have no idea if they're really significant leaders in the industry. I have no idea if they're actually any good at delegation. But you know what? It didn't matter because the things that they were telling me and the impact that it was going to have was minimal. I was listening. Kind of going, that's good teaching. That's a good insight. I think I might nick that and use that as I think about delegation myself. None of those people said in their videos, I will change your life. None of them said to me, even through the video, this, this, this is going to completely revolutionize your heart and your mind. Well, they made some statements that delegation's a good thing, but that was as far as it went. And so I didn't have to make any decisions about them, did I? Didn't have to make any decisions about whether I was going to follow their advice or not. Jesus is different because Jesus makes those sorts of claims. It's one last piece of the context, though, that we need to just observe before uh, I, I wrap up. And that's related to what G Jesus goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 20. He's talked about uh, John the Baptist and the signs that Jesus performs and what that says about who he is. And he's talked about John the Baptist's identity and who that points to Jesus being. He's given this invitation, but just before he does, he also expresses some judgment on towns in Judea and Galilee who have seen his miracles, who have heard his teaching, and have rejected him. Because he actually suggests that if you actually understand who Jesus is, if you actually do the math on, uh, on what he says he is about and who he says he is, if you actually pay attention to that, then the appropriate response is to repent. 
He actually takes some examples of Tyre and Sidon and those great cities of sin, Sodom and Gomorrah, and said that if the things that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. They would have actually done something. And repentance is one of those kind of very churchy words, I think, isn't it? But essentially, it's an action that has two motions to it, right? Repentance is acknowledging that a particular way is not working, and then you abandon that way and try something else, right? Uh, to say, this isn't working and do it again. I think that's, isn't that a sign of madness, right? Uh, you're not learning at all. Repentance involves saying, this way isn't working, and I need to try something else. We repent quite frequently, don't we? Uh, we often try things. It doesn't work. Uh, and we try something else. That's an act of repentance, an acknowledgement that this doesn't work, and perhaps we should try something different, right? It's those two pieces that go together. And Jesus calls for repentance because of who he says he is. He essentially says that it's his interpretation of the law, it's his relationship with the Father that matters, it's his death that we need to share in, it's his teaching that makes sense of life, it's his way of life that makes sense of our life. These are the sorts of claims that Jesus makes. He says, if you want forgiveness, it's in him. If you want freedom from shame and regret and remorse and guilt, it's in him. If you want healing and restoration, it's in him. If you want change in your life, deep, meaningful change and transformation, it's found in him. These are the sorts of things Jesus says about himself. And if we take Jesus seriously in any way, shape, or form, then that inevitably leads to an act of repentance, doesn't it? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and if we believe even part of that, then chances are there are certain things in our lives that we are probably doing that aren't working or aren't in line with that, and then we need to do something different. This is essentially the crisis of decision. Because as we come to a point where we actually believe something about him, our belief about Jesus will change the way we follow him. And, and this, this, um, following after Jesus is, of course, a lifetime thing, isn't it? Some of you have been following Jesus for a lifetime. Uh, have you learned everything? Uh, you, you done? Uh, you've completed the process? You completed the course? No, of course not. We're always learning. And so repentance is always appropriate for every one of us at every point in our lives. As we learn more about Jesus, as we take seriously the things that he says, repentance is always an appropriate response to take our new understanding of Jesus, to take our new understanding of what he does, changing our lives to match and so today, I want to give you an opportunity to actually respond in repentance and faith. Uh, and there's no, there's no one-size-fits-all here, is there? Uh, we're all different people. Yeah, we have a common humanity. There are lots of things that we share in common, certainly. But we're all in various places, all in various points in, in our journey. But today, I want to give you the opportunity to actually pray a simple prayer but you're going to have to do some of the work. As I think the prayer that we need to pray, each and every one of us, is this. To basically come before Jesus and tell him what we believe about him. This is what we believe about you. 
Uh, and for some of you, you, you might not have all your questions answered and all your doubts resolved and, and all that sort of stuff, but what do you believe about Jesus? And then, given what we believe about him, we then need to repent of a particular way of living. If Jesus is who he says he is, then there are certain aspects of our lives that need to change. That's the act of repentance. And then we need finally to commit to trusting him and live in that way. And so I want to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of be prompted in that prayer. I want to prompt each of those movements and allow you to make those prayers yourself. And whether you have been following Jesus for a long time or whether you have just begun to follow him, I'd like you to take some time this morning to consider what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about him, and to respond both in faith and repentance. Because as we come to Jesus and learn from him, he will give us rest and rest for our souls. So I get the cameras going to turn off. This is for us now. Uh, I want to lead you in that prayer. Uh, so in a moment, I'm going to ask all of us to be in an attitude of prayer. And then I'm going to lead us. And as I said, I'm just going to prompt us. Uh, so I'm basically going to do the whole, Lord Jesus, I believe this about you. And let you fill in the blanks. Uh, but can I encourage each of you to, in your heart, under your breath, in your mind, to express what you believe about Jesus, whatever that might be. You, you might even want to qualify and say, I think I believe this about you, or I'd really like to believe these things about you, or I'm pretty sure I believe this. I'm not sure about those things, but this is what I believe. Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that he can set you free? Do you believe that he can change your life? What do you believe about Jesus? And this is for all of us. What do you believe about Jesus? And then I want to prompt us, and I'll give you a little bit of time, and then I want to prompt us with, I repent of. What do you need to change? What's not working in your life? What's wearisome? What's burdensome? And then finally, to pray for all of us that we might be able to live out that commitment to follow Jesus. Does that make some sense? So let me lead us in this time of prayer. And again, this is for, I think, for every one of us. Um, so if I can ask you to be in an attitude of prayer, to close your eyes and bow your heads if you'd like. Uh, and then uh, in the space provided, I just encourage you to, to pray. Lord Jesus... I believe these things about you. Let's take some time now to express what you believe to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, because I believe those things about you, I recognize that I need to repent of other things. Let's take some time to reflect on those areas of your life that need to change and bring those to him. And finally, Lord Jesus, because of what we believe about you, 
because of what we've repented of, we want to commit ourselves to living differently. And I would ask that through your Holy Spirit, you might show us how we need to live differently beginning today, what it looks like to live out our faith in you. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness, your peace, your grace, your mercy, your guidance, your promise of transformation and restoration and healing of a restored relationship with God. We thank you for all that you offer to us and pray that for each one of us, we might continue to learn what it means to love and follow you all the days of our lives. We pray this all in your name. Amen.